everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Bryn. I'm Nick, and today we are thrilled to have Ambassador Wendy Sherman with us. Ambassador Sherman is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and a senior counselor at Albright Stonebridge Group. She is also a former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. She led U.S. negotiating efforts for the 2015 Iran nuclear deal and served as President Clinton's policy coordinator for North Korea. Prior to her diplomatic experience, Ambassador Sherman was the campaign manager and chief of staff for Senator Barbara Mikulski and the director of Emily's List. She has written articles for major publications, including the New York Times and Politico, and released a book in 2018 titled Not for the Faint of Heart about her experiences at the negotiating table. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambassador Sherman. To get started, we like to ask our guests about an inflection point or a point where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Could you share a moment with us? Well, there are many moments because I've had a long career and a really wonderful one. Uh, but really what is the most uh, meaningful in my own life is learning what it was to have courage. Uh, in the 60s, uh, my father, who was in residential real estate, went to a sermon uh, for Rosh Hashanah, the high holiday for the Jewish community. And the rabbi had been arrested just a couple weeks earlier for trying to help integrate an amusement park just outside of Baltimore. And he thought he owed his congregation an explanation about why he got arrested. And he said he'd been a chaplain uh, in World War II and had been at Dachau after liberation, wondered what the priests and ministers had said as Jews were being taken away. And he thought for him in his time, the responsibility was to end discrimination and degradation of African-Americans. My father was really moved by the sermon and went to see the rabbi and said, well, what can I do to help? And the rabbi said, well, you could advertise all of your sales in housing to anybody who wants to buy the house. There were no open housing laws in those days. And my father said, well, if I do that, I'll be run out of town. And the rabbi said, well, you asked me what you could do. This is what you can do. He and my mother talked about it, and they made a commitment to do just that. Within six months, my father lost 60% of his listings, and in less than a decade, his business closed. Uh, my parents never doubted the choice they made, and they taught me that if it's the right thing to do, it is worth doing. So, I mean, in your early life, you've had such a varied career. Um, Indeed. <laughs> you were in sociology and urban studies. Um, and I mean, what drew you to those fields initially? Um, you spent some time as a social worker even, uh, I mean, what, what drew you to that field initially? Uh, so my training, I have a master's in social work in community organizing and uh, clinical skills as well, which mm -hmm. have come in very handy with dictators and members of Congress. <laughs> uh, and, um, I became a social worker and an organizer for the activism and the courage my parents had shown. Uh, they also went to the founding of the United Nations in San Francisco. So they'd been activists for most of their lives and really taught um, uh, my family how important it was to engage in public service and in public life. That's a responsibility of every citizen. Uh, and I was the first director of child welfare in the state of Maryland when I was quite young. Uh, and then just through a whole bunch of serendipitous moments um, I got to do extraordinary things, work on Capitol Hill, uh, run uh, the campaign for Barbara Mikulski to become the first Democratic woman ever elected in her own right to the U.S. Senate, help presidents uh, win and lose, um, and uh, then through a very strange circumstance ended up 
uh, being Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the State Department for Warren Christopher, and have been doing national security and foreign policy ever since, uh, but also helped build an international uh, global consulting business. And now I'm at Harvard's Kennedy School uh, teaching about public leadership and the importance of leadership in a world that seems to have a bit of a deficit of one. I'm really interested in what you said about applying the clinical skills that you developed as a social worker to international negotiations. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe a specific anecdote or story where that came about? <laughs> sure. What I tell students everywhere is get a core set of skills and then apply that core set of skills to whatever comes your way in life. Um, I have had an unexpected life, and I wish that for everybody. Uh, things I've never been uh, shy about trying an opportunity I might not have thought of before. Uh, sometimes I've been right, sometimes I've been wrong, but picked myself up and went on. On the clinical skills side, you know, if you're in negotiations with adversaries particularly, you have to understand them. You have to understand their culture. Uh, you have to understand uh, what interests they're representing for their country at the table, but also what their own personal psychology is, not to become their analyst, uh, but to understand what might be the things that will press their buttons, uh, the things that might help get progress uh, to move forward, and those things that are going to be big obstacles. I mean, I guess that segues into our uh, next question here, which is just what is it like to be in the negotiating room? I mean, people will see on the news and read in the newspaper about you know, deals like the Iran nuclear deal. And I think it kind of is an abstract concept for a lot of people what those negotiations actually look like. So could you, you know, speak a little bit to, to you know, how, how the sausage gets made, if you will? Sure. Um, I'd urge everybody to read the book and then they can get the whole inside yeah. story. Uh, but, um, you know, negotiations are complicated things for things like stopping a country from having nuclear weapons. And it's not just what happens in the negotiating room. There's an awful lot that happens before you sit in a negotiating room. You have to set the table, uh, use all the tools in the diplomatic toolbox, um, uh, array our military in a way to say we're serious. If all else fails, we can take action. We don't want to, but we can. Uh, use sanctions to put pressure on, not because that's going to stop bad behavior, but it might incentivize somebody to come to the negotiating table. Uh, you use um, intelligence to understand what's going on. You use public diplomacy to try to affect the hearts and minds of people. Um, and then you have to consult inside your government to decide, well, how are you going to go about this negotiation and come to an agreement that the president of the United States says, yes, this is how I want to proceed. You also have to negotiate with the United States Congress in our system and understand what their interests are. Um, the negotiation on Iran we did with multiple partners. So you have to talk with each one of them and then talk as a group. You have to talk with countries around the world who have an interest. And then you sit in a room with the adversary and have negotiations. They are very painstaking and tedious. All four years I was the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, I was at least with my pinky finger because I was responsible for the whole world, but at least with my pinky finger, I spent an awful lot of time with Iran. Could you talk a little bit more about um, kind of how partisan politics play into foreign policy? I know there's this kind of notion of politics ends at the water's edge. I have a feeling you probably disagree with that statement. Um, I'm just curious, um, how do you work with those 
differing opinions within your own government, let alone, you know, the massive divide and interest between two nations? It's hard. Uh, there are no shortcuts. Uh, there's no easy way to do it. It's tedious, painstaking, careful work that takes a lot of time. Um, you know, we live in a time of uh, great partisanship, sadly. Uh, and uh, we have also seen a lot of power emanate around national security and foreign policy uh, to whoever sits in the White House, in part because the president is the commander in chief. Uh, but uh, just as we're doing this podcast, we are seeing some shifts uh, in the United States Senate. Uh, today, as we're speaking, uh, the Republicans, led by Senator McConnell, uh, basically said the president shouldn't precipitously leave Afghanistan or Syria um, because I think the Senate has decided that they should be the check and balance the Constitution asked them to be uh, on um, uh, the president uh, of the United States. Uh, and so I think it is always a changing dynamic. And the concept that politics stops at the water's edge, I'm not sure that was ever true, uh, but it is certainly less true now because uh, we have social media, we have um, uh, the Internet, we have uh, communications where everything is instantaneous. And everything you say, you can't just say to one audience. Uh, if you are speaking to Congress, you're also speaking to the world. So over your time as a diplomat, the information revolution has happened, the rise of social media has occurred. What are some of the biggest changes, technology or otherwise, that have changed over your career? It's really quite extraordinary. Uh, when I started as a diplomat uh, working for President Clinton, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the World Wide Web. We only had classified computers. Um, we... Uh, later on, started to have pagers. Uh, people probably don't even know what they are. Uh, they were little devices that would beep you if you had to be reached by someone, and then you'd have to go find a phone booth, which don't exist anymore, to call someone. We ultimately began to have cell phones, which were gigantic things that you couldn't put in your pocketbook uh, or in your, the breast pocket of your suit. Uh, and then um, ultimately, uh, we got... Blackberries in the State Department because they were uh, better security uh, than iPhones. So now iPhones are uh, better um, secured in some ways anyway. Um, but it has changed everything. Uh, for instance, during the Iran negotiations, the Iranians would tweet out from the negotiating room. So we'd leave the negotiating room and the press would say, well, they've just said thus and such, and we'd have to answer. But at the same time, uh, if I wanted to let one of my colleagues know that they ought to interrupt, I could text a colleague. Uh, and so you could signal each other without passing notes, uh, which is the old-fashioned way to do it. And obviously, everything that happens is instantaneously known all over the world. And so you have to deal with that. Quite different. It's been a few years since you've really sat at the negotiation table. What do you think are the is the most recent important development or change in the diplomatic community, or what do you think the most the next most important or most interesting change will be? I think one of the saddest changes is that when Secretary Tillerson was Secretary of State, and I truly don't know why, he uh, pushed out, encouraged out. Um, helped people leave uh, so that 60% of the senior foreign service is no longer at the Department of State. Uh, most of the assistant secretaries under secretary positions 
only have acting assistant secretaries and acting undersecretaries. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has filled a few more slots, but he's appointed a lot of special envoys because they don't have to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Uh, they don't go through the same rigorous public, um, sometimes people say, uh, uh, difficult time uh, that someone who is confirmed has to go through. And so I think we have undermined the diplomatic service and the foreign service and the civil service that we need. I think the shutdown uh, really said to people who are civil servants as well that uh, maybe the federal government isn't such a great place to work. And I want to encourage everybody listening to this, please uh, go into public service. Please go into the foreign service. Go into the civil service. There are remarkable jobs, phenomenal experiences, a great workforce. Uh, life is ever-changing. Uh, bosses will change over time, and you can make an extraordinary contribution on behalf of this country. Great. And then I was wondering, too, um, was there any point in any of the negotiations you were involved with where your own personal beliefs of um, you know, what was the most effective policy, what the you know, morally correct policy was, did not uh, coincide with that of your administration? And if, if so, how did you kind of reconcile that, that difference? Um, absolutely. And these are really hard moments. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you two quick examples. During um, when Secretary Warren Christopher was Secretary of State under the Clinton administration, uh, we were in the midst of Bosnia and then Kosovo. And it was very hard to justify where things were and the fact that no one was intervening, no one was protecting the Muslim minority uh, in the Balkans. Uh, and um, one day uh, I read in the morning intelligence that there was a mass grave at Srebrenica where just unbelievable numbers of people had been murdered. And I walked down to Secretary Christopher and I said, I, I don't, then I was the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. I had to go up on Capitol Hill and defend our policy. I said, I'm not sure I can keep going up on Capitol Hill and defending our policy in the face of this. Well, the good news is that both Secretary Christopher and President Clinton thought the same thing and policy changed. The second was more difficult even. Um, I think everyone is well aware that uh, President Obama said that if Syria used chemical weapons, uh, that we would take a strike, we would not let it stand. And then at the end, the president decided that he needed to consult with Congress, and he did not take that strike. And it was a Friday, and Secretary Kerry, how is the undersecretary then? Secretary Kerry had given a brilliant speech, which sort of laid out the rationale. We all thought this was going to happen by Saturday morning. It had not happened. It was really tough. Uh, and uh, I think that President Obama constantly struggled with what was the best thing to do. He worried about the legal basis for us taking action. Uh, we had uh, begun to strike terrorists because the Iraqi government had asked us to protect their border. And when a sovereign country asks you to do that, then you can intervene. But to actually attack um, Assad's forces, what was the legal basis for doing that? Um, and was it a slippery slope of American military intervention around which we would never be able to exit? Uh, it was a tough decision. I know that President Obama struggled with that issue to the very end of his presidency. Uh, I decided, uh, understanding the complexity of this, to stick with it, but it was, it was a hard one, very hard. And, and the president knew I did not agree with where he went, but I did understand his thinking, and it was a very tough call. Those two experiences sound, as the title of your book is, like they are not for the people who are not faint of heart. 
Um, I'm curious, the title of your book implies that there are some challenges and just really big obstacles to being successful in the foreign service and in diplomacy. What are some of the other aspects of your job that you found the most challenging or the most difficult? Well, as Undersecretary of Political Affairs, you're responsible for every region of the world and all international organizations. That's a pretty big remit. And uh, plus, because I was the political director in our government, I was the person who was doing the day-to-day Iran negotiations. In the four years I was undersecretary, I went to 54 countries, uh, some of them several times, let alone all the Iran stuff. Um, And uh, what I learned through that experience is you can only do those things, uh, one, when you have a wonderful family uh, that supports what you're doing. Uh, There were times when I said, I'm not sure I can continue this, and my husband would say to me, you are part of history. Of course you're going to continue it. And I I give him a lot of credit for my sustenance through all of this uh, and friends who didn't see me (laughs) uh, for quite a bit of time. And uh, the other part is to have a team that is really tremendous, to whom you delegate your authority, make sure they don't overstep the bounds of that authority, but you rely on a, a team that shares your values and the norms that you set out about how to conduct business um, because you can't be everywhere all of the time. Uh, and you, of course, I, of course, worked for Secretary Kerry and for the President of the United States. So uh, nothing just falls on your shoulders. You have to work hard and play well with others. Another thing that I can imagine might have been challenging was often being one of the only women at the negotiating table. Could you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, especially in the face of some cultural barriers that might have come up? Yeah, Madeleine Albright, who I worked for as her counselor when she was Secretary of State, and then she and I and some other colleagues built a business, and she's a dear friend, told me a long time ago when she was the ambassador to the UN that uh, when you sit at the negotiating table, um, you're less Wendy Sherman, um, uh, a woman, uh, an American, in my case, a Jewish American, you are the United States of America. And the United States of America is a pretty powerful thing to be. Uh, And if you remember that, uh, it works pretty well. Uh, That said, uh, being a woman does bring some barriers. And the one, one of the ones I talk about in the book is I couldn't shake hands with the Iranians uh, because uh, it is a a conservative Muslim culture and there is no touching of women who, even accidentally, who are not your daughter or your uh, wife or your mother. Uh, And... um, so one day, wanting to find some common ground, I started talking to my counterparts, Abbas Arachi and Majid Ravanchi, about the fact that I grew up in a Jewish community and among Orthodox Jews, they can't shake the hand of a woman either. At first, they were sort of mortified by this discussion, uh, but it, it served to find a common ground culturally uh, with each other. And of course, we'd go in the negotiating room and be f- as fierce as ever uh, on behalf of our countries. But it did add a little bit of humanity uh, into the process. Great. Well, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, people our age seem to agonize over finding their calling, over finding the one thing. Um, And, you know, a lot of us think that we need to go and become specialists and, you know, our our one chosen field. Um, But, I mean, just hearing you talk, you've had serendipitous occasions that you've seized on. Um, you have an extremely varied career from uh, Fannie Mae, Emily's List, congressional offices, um, you know, to all your diplomatic work. 
Um, and so I guess my question is, how do you define success and how would you uh, help students define success in their own lives and, and encourage them to perhaps follow a path that is uncertain? Well, first I would say uh, what I say to all the incoming uh, Foreign Service officers, what we call the A100 class, uh, and I'm not a Foreign Service officer, I was a political appointee, mm -hmm. but what I say to them is you're going to have phenomenal careers but at the end of your careers, what you have left is your family and your friends. So find some space and time for them and don't neglect those relationships. So I, I haven't always done this well in my own life, so I don't want to claim perfection here, but it is really, really important. Um, so I'd urge everybody to pay attention to personal relationships. You can't do anything in life alone or by yourself. Nothing happens just by you alone. Nothing. Um, but secondly, as I said earlier, get a, a, a skill set and then use that with whatever opportunity you have, whether that's skills as a diplomat, skills as an organizer, skills as a lawyer, uh, skills as an economist or a sociologist. Um, one of the things at the Kennedy School now that I'm director of the Center for Public Leadership is we have students with all kinds of backgrounds who have done all kinds of things, extraordinarily diverse. Half of the students are international students, come from all over the world. People have varied lives. They're all important. They all can make a valuable contribution. And I say to those of you who are about to graduate, as you are, Bryn, uh, don't fret too much over your first job. Uh, the first job I took out of graduate school um, I didn't last very long. A better opportunity came along. I learned something from that first opportunity, but I knew it wasn't something I was going to do for life, but it was going to pay me a good salary and get me started. And so that's what you need to do when you come out of college. I also urge people, if they can, don't go to graduate school right away. I worked for three years. Then when I went to graduate school, the teachers um, treated me much more like an adult because I'd had work experience, and I didn't treat them like gods. Uh, I understood that, uh, you know, everybody has imperfections. So um, just begin and then be willing to take risks and learn you'll come out the other side. You'll make mistakes. I've taken some jobs and I knew as soon as I took them, it was a really bad mistake. Uh, it took me sometimes a year to extricate myself because you want to extricate yourself in a way that won't ruin your reputation. Um, but I learned I'd come out the other side and... Even now, here I am, uh, the book says I'm 69 years old, I'm not a kid, uh, but this opportunity came along, which I didn't seek, to be the director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard, and uh, my husband and I decided, well, this is a new adventure, why not? Um, because it's going to stretch me and make me think, uh, how can I help young people be the leaders that we so desperately need for the future? Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. Thank you so much to Ambassador Sherman for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>